It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey, everybody. This is Bob Murphy. No, I'm kidding. That's my Bob Murphy imitation. Hopefully it doesn't suck. Evan Roberts, welcome to episode, I guess, three of Rico Bronia as the New York Mets have finally completed what has felt like an endless West Coast trip. They do it by winning two out of three against the Angels and securing something that I think we all would have taken a week and a half ago, a five and five road trip. We'll examine how they got there, the brilliant managing of Buck Showalter in the finale of this series. But let's start off with the fact that we're all tired. I mean, (laughs) I got to tell you, if you're a diehard fan, And you believe, hey, look, I'm going to stay up late. I'm going to watch every single game, at least as much as I can. West Coast trips, which we're used to, they happen every single season. They're tough. They're not easy. I remember last year, one of the West Coast trips they had, the one that took them to L.A. and San Francisco, at least, because now you could have multiple West Coast trips. But the one where they went to L.A. and San Francisco, and the season was obviously unraveling at this point, occurred in mid-August, and I was on vacation. And I love the timing of it because during the day I was at the beach playing with the kids. Everybody falls asleep by 8, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Evan's by himself watching the Mets. Like the timing of it was perfect. The timing of the last week and a half for all of us, you know, early June, late May, whenever the hell this thing started. I mean, we're, we're, we're working. I, most of us work. <laughs> I got to tell you. Staying up until 1 o'clock in the morning, day after day after day after day, has been a chore. Because normally, when they have a West Coast trip, A, it doesn't last as long as this. I mean, this was 10 games. 10 freaking games. And here's the crazy part. Okay, 10 games is long. That's caveat number one. The second thing is, they were all effing night games. Like, we didn't have a mixed-in Thursday afternoon. Not that I prefer that, because selfishly, we're on the air, Carton and Roberts, 2 to 6.30. So when there's a 4 o'clock game, it's tough to watch. We're doing a show. But if you think about the origins of this trip, going back to last Thursday against the Dodgers, Thursday night, 10 o'clock. Friday night, 10 o'clock. Saturday night, 10 o'clock. Ooh, Sunday at 4, great. Then you go Monday, 9.40. Tuesday, 9.40. Wednesday, 9.40. Friday, 9.38. Saturday, 10.10. And then even this game, the finale of this series, we recorded right after it ended. Okay, 7 o'clock. It was night after night after night. I said to my wife this morning, I said, I'm tired. Like, I need the freaking Mets to come home. Or, Or just go to the East Coast. So, before we get into any of the games, let's just all give each other a nice... A nice podcast hug, because we all need it. We're tired. I need a good night's sleep. I haven't had a good night's sleep in two weeks. Now, you could say, come on, it's the Mets. Go to sleep early. It ain't easy to go to sleep early. There was, I will admit this. I will admit this. There was one game on this road trip in which in the seventh inning, after midnight, so it's not like it was that early, seventh inning, after midnight, I said, I'm done. Like, dude, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't care if I watch every single pitch and I score every single game and I'm a psycho. This is the moment where I'm going to tap out. And I will give you the moment. It was game two of this series against the Angels. Saturday night, I think it was, let me check my scorecard because you could see in my handwriting, or at least I could see in my handwriting when I was done. Okay. It was when, 
Well, let me find the page. So game two of this series, it was when Mike Trout hit his second home run. That was it. The two-run home run in the sixth inning, which at that point made it like 10 nothing, 11 nothing. I, mean, I think that made it 10 nothing. That was the point where I said, all right, I mean, well, what, am I, what am I doing with my life right now? It's Saturday night. Everybody's sleeping. My oldest son tried to score the game. I'm not even kidding you. He's like, no, I'll stay up. I'm like, you kidding me? This game starts at 10 o'clock at night. He got two innings in before I started hearing the snores loudly coming from right next to me. And I look over at him. He's asleep in his own drool. Mike Trout just hit another bomb. And that's when I said, I got to go to sleep. So full disclosure, did I see Pete Alonzo hit a home run into the seven line? I saw a replay of it. Did I see Khalil Lee hit a home run and pimp it the entire time? Yeah, I saw it on a replay. I went to bed. Outside of that, it was staying up until 1 o'clock in the morning every single night. But here's what we need to be thrilled with. We need to be thrilled with the fact that this baseball team, without Max Scherzer, without Jacob deGrom, and in the midst of this trip, without Pete Alonso and without Starling Marte. And obviously the Mets have come out of that clean because Marte finally returned in the finale of this series. Pete came back for this entire series and looked great. Didn't miss a beat for the most part, hitting a couple of home runs. Really, it picked it up late last night. And then even today hits that insurance home run, the finale of this series Sunday night. They got out of this trip really as well as you could have imagined, especially when you factor in not just those injuries I pointed out, But Chris Bassett struggles when you throw that in there, when you throw in the fact, okay, Tyler McGill comes back, but you knew he wasn't going to be able to go deep into the game. Uh, This was as realistically good as you could have expected. I mean, sure, we could fantasize about eight and two or seven and three, but that was never realistic, especially when you look at the teams you were going up against. A very good Dodger team, a very good Padre team, and even an Angel team that you knew was going to be tough considering they just had that extended 14-game losing streak. I don't think they're that bad. I mean, you see the talent on this team. Not that they're very good, but they're not that bad. They got Mike Trout back in the middle of this series. Shohei Otani's a pain in the ass. Thank you, Phil Nevin, for not playing him in the finale of this series. And look, Patrick Sandoval's a pretty good arm. Like, they've got some decent players on this team. This was not going to be easy. So to get through L.A., San Diego, and Anaheim, split, lose a series, win a series, and walk out as thing five and five is incredible. Now, I'll get into it a little bit later about where the standings are because obviously the NL East looks very different today than it did a week and a half ago, and that doesn't have that much to do with the Mets. It has everything to do with the fact that the Atlanta Braves have gotten completely red hot. But overall, you've got to be thrilled at what they were able to do in this series. To go five and five against the Dodgers, against the Padres, against the Angels, That's the ultimate win. And it really started at least the conclusion of this series with Friday. Because if you remember on the last edition of Rico Bronia, we said it, look, as disappointing as the final two games against San Diego was, just go out and beat Anaheim two out of three. It's very simple. And you get to five and five. And you look at the opener of this series, which was so important. You have Tyler McGill coming back from the injured list. You're not really sure what to expect. They jump all over this Jonathan Diaz in the second inning after they blew an opportunity in the first inning when Pete Alonso grounded into that double play. And I was a little worried because if you remember when Pete got drilled last year against the Cardinals and he came back after not missing a beat, he went through a slump about three to four weeks. So it was on my mind Friday night when Pete returned to the lineup, just wondering, all right, are we going to get Alonso back but a guy who's struggling? 
And he was, for the most part, pretty quiet in the opener of this series. And even the second game of this series didn't do anything until he hit that late home run, but then clearly built on it with the finale as he hits another home run. So it's two home runs in three games. It's tough to complain, but they jump all over Jonathan Diaz. Mark Connor with that rip two-run double. He has a big game. And Tyler McGill was, I mean, he was... He was all right. I just didn't know what, how much more we could have expected from him considering how much time he missed. He gives up the two-run home run to Brandon Marsh. He runs into trouble in the third inning, gets through it. He didn't get a full opportunity to get through the fourth inning. And then Buck goes to David Peterson. And I mentioned this before. Buck Showalter doesn't say anything to the media. And we all love him. Doesn't matter. He leaves a lot of things very close to the vest. And one of the things he left, is it vest or chest, by the way? Close to the vest or close to the chest? Do you know the answer to that, Hoff? Because I've never known that my entire I think life. It's, I think it's a vest. Is it I a vest? Probably, I'm probably wrong about that, though. It sounds sounds about right. Vest. Hammock no vest. bone close to the vest. <laughs> we get it all right here, baby. Well, put it this way. Buck didn't tell us crap. So, you know, we know, okay, they're going to skip David Peterson. Plus, Trevor Williams is going to the bullpen. I think I mentioned on the pod a few days ago. Yeah, Trevor Williams is going to tag team with Tyler McGill. No, no, no. It was David Peterson tailgating with Ty, uh, tag teaming with Tyler McGill. So Buck kind of didn't really tell us that, nor should he. Like, I get it. You know, you want to keep you want to team, keep teams guessing. So why the hell not? And David Peterson did a hell of a job because the first thing he does when he comes in with guys on base is he gets Tyler Wade to bounce into a double play. And he did really well. Gave him two and a third innings, two and two thirds innings, whatever it was. And the Mets are able to tack on. And that's the best part about this offense. They score three runs in the second inning. Okay, great. Score more. Brandon Nimmo hits a home run in the fourth inning. Brandon Nimmo at the two-run double in the sixth inning. And they tack on and they eventually kind of walk away easily, beating the Angels into the opener of this series, which once you take that opener and now you're looking at the final two games of this series saying, all right, get me a split and you've got your five and five trip. You're already off to a great start. You get Brandon Nimmo a little bit hot because he's been quiet for a while. He gets on base three more times, a little bit of pop with the home run and the two-run double. So a very good opener to this series. The second game of this series was just a disaster. I mean, there was Honestly, there was nothing good about it. I Actually, there was one positive. The one positive I took out of game two of this series, the game they lost 11-6, and in my brain they lost 11-0 because I don't think I ever saw them score any of those six runs until the next morning. One of those rare times, I admit that, as I mentioned earlier. But it was just bad Carrasco. And that's what we get. Carlos Carrasco has mostly been very, very good as a Met. Or this year as a Met. I shouldn't say as a Met because last year was you know not good at all. But what I've noticed about Carlos Carrasco, I like to call it the Bobby Jones syndrome. For anybody who remembers the great Bobby Jones back in the day. Bobby Jones, 70% of the time, would pitch really, really, really well. He had that big looping curveball. We all remember the one-hit shutout against the Cardinals in the National League Championship Series. But Bobby Jones, I'd say 70% of the time, pitched really, really well. And then there would be a start every four or five starts in which he would get his you-know-what packed. Craig and I had a very long discussion about S-packed and F-packed. I am saying S-packed, where you get your S-packed. And that would kind of loop up Bobby Jones's numbers because if you have one start where you give up five or six or seven runs, that's going to kill your ERA. Pete Hoffman knows all about that. He deals with that in fantasy all the time. He's got that one starter, gives up seven or eight runs, 
doesn't matter about the rest of it. So here's Carlos Carrasco's season this year. And I think this will illuminate or illustrate the point I'm trying to make that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. First start of the year gives up one earned run. Beautiful. Second, zero runs. Third, two. Okay, we're up to a great start. His fourth start, that game against the Cardinals, three and two-thirds innings, eight runs. Okay? So three starts, one four seven ERA, one bad start, ERA jumps up to 4-5. Then he goes eight scoreless, six and two-thirds, two runs. Then he's got a dud where he gives up four runs against the Mariners. Five and a third, one runs. Five and two-thirds, five runs. That's another dud. So actually had a couple of duds. Then his last two starts before Saturday. Five scoreless against Washington. Seven innings, two runs, ten strikeouts against the Padres. And then Saturday night where he gives up five runs, nine hits, and four and two-thirds innings. He will give you these duds every... I guess on average this season, he's made 12 starts, and let's say he's had three duds. So once every four starts, he'll have an absolute dud, and it ruins his ERA. You have one bad start like that, it just kills your ERA. So he's got a four ERA, but if you've watched him this year, and I said this about him last week, and I'm going to say it again, I think this latest start almost helps prove my point. His numbers don't actually indicate how good he's been. Yeah, he was bad Saturday night, no doubt about it. Right out of the gate, first batter of the game, Brandon Marsh, who looks like Charlie Blackman, basically just because they have long hair and they just look disgusting. They look like they need to take a shower. But whatever, Brandon Marsh, Charlie Blackman, it's great company if you're Brandon Marsh. As soon as he worked that eight-pitch walk to start the game, Carlos was in trouble. Gives up the bomb of a double to Otani. Gives up a double to Rendon. Oh, Anthony Rendon. Oh, God. <laughs> I just can't. And when he signed with the Angels, I was so happy because I would never have to see him again. And here he is. And here he is. But then he starts throwing batting practice, gives up a home run to Mike Trout, gives up a home run to Shohei Otani. And I think finally Buck realized, all right, I didn't want to use a lot of my bullpen because I had to use a lot of it in the opener of this series because of the Tyler McGill situation. So he didn't have David Peterson available. Obviously, he'd get to Trevor Williams eventually, but really tried to squeeze more out of Carlos Carrasco, but he couldn't because he sucked because he was terrible. And what coincided with this was the fact that the Mets had so many really good opportunities against that jacked up Michael Lorenzen. I mean, his muscles are just, I, I quite frankly, I can't stop looking at him. He is so ripped, Michael Lorenzen. Even in his days with the Cincinnati Reds, he'd come in from center field to pitch and I'd say, look at this guy. He's like a freaking bodybuilder. Anyhow. I don't have a man crush on Michael Lorenzen. I'm just admiring that he's he's built very well. But the Mets had, you go back to the first inning of this game, the leadoff error in which Nimmo hit the ground ball to second phase and Rangifo boots it. They had two on, nobody out in the first inning, and they got nothing. And this is very unmet-like because the Mets have been great this season with runners in scoring position. They've been fantastic. They've been clutch. But two on, nobody out, first inning, they get nothing. They get a one-out double by Eduardo Escobar, infield tip by Luis Guillerme, get nothing in the second inning. They had a couple of guys on base in the fifth inning. They get nothing. Leadoff guy in the sixth inning, got nothing. So as the Angels are scoring a bunch of runs on Carlos Carrasco, you know, Mets get a run here, there, here, there. They could keep this a game. Never did that. It was actually a very frustrating game to watch and, and unfamiliar for us because they have been so good with runners in scoring position. 
something that killed them in 21 and something that really killed them in 2020. I know it was a short season, so we try to forget its existence. But you asked me to define from a baseball sense, not the the oddness of there being cardboard cutouts in the outfield, to define 2020. I'd say, yeah, you know what defines 2020? The Mets actually had a really good offensive season, but they could never get a big hit. And that hasn't been the case this season. They have been getting big hits. They did score a bunch of runs late in this game. Uh, It didn't really matter. It was just one of those games in which you knew early on, this ain't our night. This isn't going to be a Met victory. And that's why when... You know, I tell Pete, hey, let's make a list of worst Met losses. They haven't had a lot of really horrible losses. There are losses like this in which you just get your ass kicked and you shrug your shoulders and say, okay, Carlos Carrasco wasn't good. Jake Reed comes in and is throwing batting practice. All right, we move on. And that's why as we get to the finale of this series, the game in which we just watched, because we were recording this episode of Rico Bronia right after this series ended, I went into this game tonight. I was a little tipsy, by the way. I had a few drinks today. So, you know, my brain wasn't fully focused. Uh, But I said to my wife, who did not give a rat's ass about this, but I said, you know what, hon? This is a big game tonight. And she looked at me and said, big game tonight. You sit there with your scorecard and score 160 games. But tonight's a big night. Tonight's different. And I said, it is. It's different because me and Pete Hoffman are going to record Rico Bronia as soon as it's over. No, no, no. I said, here's why it's big. And I'm being dead serious here. This was not, what did I drink today? Well, I went to the Yankee game, and I had this really fruity red drink, a frozen drink. I didn't get tipsy from that. because Like a daiquiri? Yeah, I think it was. I, honestly, Hoff, I don't know what it was. I just said to my wife, get me the fruitiest frozen drink you could find. Got to be a frozen so, daiquiri then. Yeah, I would think that's the ma- case. You think that, uh, so it was a strawberry daiquiri? I would, a, a fruity drink? Makes sense for like frozen daiquiri. What what are the frozen drinks they have? It's a good point. I really have no idea. A judge juice bomb? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) By the way, for anyone who cares, I went to this Yankee game because my brother-in-law is a Yankee fan. They were in town, and I said, yeah, let's go to the Yankee game. And it was perfect because the Mets played at night, so it wasn't even interfering with the game. So my son comes, has really gotten into baseball. Uh, My nephew, my niece, we're all at the game. And I say to them, Look, this is your day. You're the Yankee fan. So if you want to leave early, if you want to stay the whole game, I'm at your beck and call. And the Yankee game was just, a, I mean, it was horrific. They won 18 to 4, whatever the hell it was. It was it was 10 to 1 in the third inning. So we actually left in the sixth inning, which is one of the earliest I've ever left a baseball game. But you know what? It was two and a half hours in, and the game was well decided. So we got home, and then that's when I really started, you know, drinking uh i think i had a few beers or something like that but what was i saying <laughs> what you're was saying you were, you're drunk right now as you're doing this <laughs> podcast not, i swear i'm not drunk you're yeah, tipsy I, you might be getting violated later tonight what are you talking about i was well i hope so i was <laughs> i was tipsy as i was getting my scorecard ready uh by the time the game started i was i was good i swear to god it was not it was not anything intense But I was explaining to my wife why this was a big game. Because to her, she sees 162 and says, well, what would make this bigger than the others? And the reason it was big is because there's just a difference in feeling, in tone, in how we would think about this team going into Tuesday night when they finally return home to play the Brewers. It's different to be four and a half games up 
after you were 10 and a half games up a week and a half ago. It's different to say, yeah, they went four and six on this road trip as compared to five and five, especially when they won the opener of this series and maybe follow the same trek they had against San Diego of losing back-to-back games. So I think the combination of, yes, the divisional lead, which we'll spend more time on in a little bit, and the fact that four and six and five and five just feel different. There's a different feel to it. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, I sat down tonight saying, it's big. This game's going to determine how we feel about this road trip. Like, I feel good about this road trip. Hoff, do you feel good about it? Like, right now, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How do you feel about this road trip? I actually feel great for everything that took place, for the injuries, again, the fact that we're missing, like you said, Scherzer, DeGrom still not being around. This could have gotten, gone so wrong. To be 5-5, five and five, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Honestly, I, that, I feel incredible. And, and look, you're right. Like This could have been a disaster, especially because of the injuries they dealt with in the middle of this uh, road trip even though they turned out not to be major. I mean, Pete and Starling are back. But wouldn't you admit that while 4-6 and six wouldn't be a disaster, no one's saying it would be, if we're sitting here at 4-6, and six, or are we like, yeah, well, it wasn't great. We survived it. I'm glad to be home, but eh. Yeah, well, listen, 4-6, four and six, I, I, I would have been a little unhappy, but not totally devastated because, again, like the way they got their asses handed to them some of these games – it was like we're like in survive mode. And I still look at this as possibly being the worst like stretch that they're going to have all season. And this is amazing. Five and five. You're right. Four and six would be like, eh. But still, even if it was four and six, this possibly being the worst stretch of the season for them, I'll take it. Well, let, let's hope it's the worst stretch of the season for them. I'm, I'm hoping we're not staring at like an 11 out of 13 at some point. But no, you're happening. right. When you when you look at the losses, other than the first game of this road trip, which I think was the 2-0 game, uh, where Tony Gonsolin dominated, I think that was the first game of this series, the losses were obvious. The losses were, yeah, they got their ass kicked. There were no devastating West Coast losses that you regret. None oh my God, this was theirs. They blew it, the missed opportunity. The losses were games in which they got shut out or blown out. But that's the difference. That's why I went into this game tonight with Starling Marte back, which was really cool. Very excited to see it because he's missed how many games in a row. But that's why I looked at this game and said, this is significant. You know, the pitching matchup is close. Patrick Sandoval's a pretty good lefty. Taiwan Walker mostly has been good this season. So Trout's back. Otani's luckily getting an off day, but you kind of figured, all right, Otani's going to show his face at some point. He's going to pinch it for Kurt Suzuki at some point late in this game. So I looked at it and said, this is big. They go down one nothing right out of the gate. I mean, it felt early with the way Taiwan Walker was throwing the baseball in the first inning that this was going to be another one of those blowouts because they weren't equipped bullpen-wise. Like, where were they going if the first inning was an indicator of what Taiwan Walker had tonight? Where were they going? They really had nowhere to go. So they needed a solid five or six innings out of tie. And when he gives up a leadoff double to Brandon Marsh, an RBI single to Mike Trout, he gets the double play on Anthony Rendon great, but then promptly gives a back-to-back hitch to Jared Walsh and Matt Duffy. And here's Juan Lagares, who let's not forget, yes, he got him out. He hit the crap out of the ball. Hit a line drive to right at Brandon Nimmo. So as... Taiwan Walker's walking off the field, and it's one nothing Angels going to the second inning. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. 
And they're fortunate to be down one nothing. And this could turn really, really quickly. This could be very similar to some of these other games that got out of hand promptly. And everything changed. And I give Taiwan Walker incredible credit because, yes, it's the bottom of the order. Yes, it's Kurt Suzuki and Tyler Wade and Andrew Velasquez. But he goes out and strikes out the side in the second inning. All of a sudden, Taiwan Walker's getting swing and misses. And he was not fooling anybody in the first inning. And it changed everything in this game. It really did. I mean, he looked like a completely different pitcher after that rocky first inning. I also thought a big moment for him is third inning of this game, he gives up an infield hit to Brandon Marsh. Okay, not the end of the world. But you've got Mike Trout coming up. And you've got Anthony Rendon coming up. And in a big spot, picks him off. And completely short-circuited that inning. And after that, I mean, Ty was mostly good. You know, he had to make a couple of big pitches. The Angels had a couple of big opportunities, specifically in the fourth inning when they had two on and two out. And he gets the big strike out of Tyler Wade. And he looks so good and so in command that if Buck wanted to, and I get why he didn't, he could have pushed him for seventh inning. He's at 97 pitches. He did retired seven in a row. He looked really good facing that order a third time around, getting a bunch of swing and misses, getting a lot of weak contact. But I think Buck figured... And this was the brilliance of tonight. And I tweeted about this about an inning before it happened because you could feel it. You could feel why this was setting up this way. This was setting up to be a multi-inning, multi-out Edwin Diaz kind of night. And the reason I felt it, and the reason I'm sure everyone felt it, is because you had the perfect combination. You had an off day tomorrow. You had... A game that I think even Buck sitting there, whether he admits it or not, would say, hey, this one feels important. This one feels like a game I really want. And he has a weapon in Edwin Diaz who has not been used a lot. When you go back and look at the last week, he hasn't pitched a lot. I mean, think about it. Go through how often he's pitched over the latter part of this road trip. They used him on Friday only just to get him work because Buck realized... I got to get Edwin Diaz work. So you got a guy who's fresh because he hasn't pitched a lot and you want to pitch him. Like even if the Mets are winning this game 11-1, Edwin Diaz gets into this game. Mets are losing 11-1. He may want to get Edwin Diaz into this game with an off day upcoming and how little he's pitched over the last few days. So I think in Buck's mind, as we go to the seventh inning, and I'm thinking it too, I don't need to push Taiwan Walker. I got Seth Lugo, who I can ask for more than three outs from, and I got Edwin Diaz. I've got two arms, and I think we mostly agree, Drew Smith is certainly in this argument, that the two relievers you trust the most, even though Lugo's been so shaky, is, well, it's Diaz and somebody else. (laughs) That's the truth. Maybe it's Adam Adovino at this point. I don't know. It's Edwin Diaz and someone else. Drew Smith, Seth Lugo, Adam Adovino. It's not Jolie Rodriguez. It's not Chasen Shreve. Honestly, that's a good question. Who is the second reliever you trust after Edwin Diaz? You know, it's funny. I'd probably still say Lugo only because of his history here more than anything. Not not because of the way he's pitched this season. I mean, obviously, remember him blowing the Dodger game the way he did. I think it's more I've seen Lugo come up in big spots and succeed for this team more than anyone else in this bullpen. It's an interesting question. Who do you trust the most off after Edwin Diaz in this bullpen? Ugh, uh, there's no good answer there. I mean, I guess the safest <laughs> is Lugo, but I really don't. That's my biggest concern about the team still is that I just the lack of bullpen. Well, they're going to they're gonna get somebody. I, yeah. I'll tell you two things. Who? They're going to acquire somebody. 
and that's obvious. And here's the other guy that I would very much think about and say, huh, that could work. And that's Tyler McGill. Because if this team is healthy and Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom are, in fact, walking through that door, unless you're going six-man rotation, there's an odd man out. And not an odd man out maybe Tyler McGill, but it may not be odd man out in a bad way because you could look at him and say, hey, that's a hell of a weapon coming out and getting me three, four, five, maybe even more, more outs in a big spot. So I think the combination of, yeah, they'll go out and make a trade, but then also they've got a starting pitcher option that they can go to that could actually be effective for them. I think that's the other possibility. But right, I mean, look, right now there is no right answer. You're right. It's Edwin Diaz and not much else. And I give Edwin Diaz a lot of credit because he's been trustworthy. And he really has. I know he's had his bad moments here and there, but for the most part, he's been electric. So Buck's managing this game seventh inning on saying, I know I've got that weapon. I know at some point I can deploy Edwin. And he did it perfectly. Lugo pitches a one, two, three, seventh inning. Great. Let him start the eighth. And my attitude was this. And I'd love to sit here and first guess the crap out of managers. I've done it many times, but here's my first guess. Guy gets on base. I go to Edwin Diaz. That is my first guess. Well, Buck did it. I love Buck. I mean, I Buck managed that eighth inning exactly the way I, I wanted, and I'm sure many Met fans wanted. Lugo gets Rengifo to ground out, and I think he fell behind him too, which was sort of scary. Now he faces Brandon Marsh with a two-run lead. And somehow, and maybe this is why we shouldn't trust Seth Lugo, he walks him on four pitches. And you know Mike Trout's on deck. Like, if you're Seth Lugo, and I know it's not as easy as saying this, so for us, it's like we're playing a video game. If I'm playing Hoff and MLB the show, and everything's the same, he's the Angels, I'm the Mets, right? And Brandon Marsh is up and Mike Trout's on deck. I'd probably say this through the headphones to Pete. I'd say... I'm just, I'm going to groove it because I'd rather you hit a home run than me walk this guy ahead of Mike Trout. Now, I get it. Seth Lugo is not a machine. He's not a controller at a video game. But when it's 2-0, and even before I got the 3-0, it's 2-0, and I'm saying to the TV, Seth, just throw a freaking strike. If Brandon Marsh hits the ball over the fence, okay, you're done anyway. But the one thing you can't do is you can't walk him. You've got God on deck. And I know I'm over-exaggerating, but he is talked about as if he's God. The great Mike Trout. And he is great, by the way. I'm not disputing his greatness. It's just the talk about him sometimes frustrates me. And Seth Lugo walks Brandon Marsh on four pitches. And at that moment, Buck Showalter made the right decision. The decision that if he doesn't make it there, we're all screaming and yelling at the top of our lungs, whether it works or it doesn't work, because... The one thing I'll always try to do, and it may sound stupid at times, but I I really believe in it, so I apologize if it sounds stupid, is I'm going to tell you what I thought at the time strategy-wise, even if it backfires, even if, why are you even bringing that up? Everything worked out well, because I'm going to be honest about what I'm thinking at the time. What I'm thinking at the time is get Seth Lugo's dopey ass out of this game. He just walked Brandon Marsh on four pitches. And get Edwin Diaz in and throw him right in the fire. Because if the New York Mets are going to win a World Series this year, isn't that the goal? Isn't that why we're here? Edwin Diaz is going to have to do crap like this. He's going to have to come in and get four or five out saves. Now, this isn't far to him. If you go back to last year, Edwin Diaz had four and five out saves. 
He's done it before. This is not something he's never done. He hasn't done it this year. Buck hasn't deployed him now. So for 2022, first time he's done it. But in 2019, he came in for, if I'm not mistaken, and you could try to fact check me on this, four multi, three or more out, not three or more outs, four or more out saves. Like eighth inning, trying to get a save. And he was effective three of those four times. The one time he wasn't effective is a game that I think basically killed him at season last year. Final game before the All-Star break against the Pirates, which my five-year-old still remembers. We blew it against the Pirates. Yes. No, I know. I know, Jet. And, you know, that day I was screaming, come on, Jake, come out of the bullpen on three days rest. Meanwhile, he hasn't pitched since. So I'm asking this guy to pitch on three days rest. Yeah, three days earlier was the last start he made. And we're still waiting on him to come back. So the point is Edwin can do this. And the Mets are going to need Edwin to do this. Whether they add a big arm out of the bullpen like we predict and assume, whether there is a starting pitcher that ends up in the bullpen, there's going to be moments come October, ask Jairus Familia, where Edwin Diaz is going to have to get four, five, Six out saves. He strikes out Mike Trout. I'm telling you, this is odd. First pitch slider, I was confident. As soon as he broke that 91-mile-an-hour slider that Mike Trout got frozen on, I felt good. Then he swings through like a 99-mile-an-hour fastball, strikes out Mike Trout. He walks Anthony Rendon, which made me nervous again, and then he strikes out Jared Walsh, and he wasn't helped out by this Randy Rosenberg character, the home plate umpire, who missed how many calls in the 8th and ninth inning? There were a few. Go back and look. I'm not a bitch-ass Ranger fan just complaining. I'm being honest. Like, that's factual. Like, strike zones are factual. What's a penalty and what's not a penalty is just Ranger fans bitching. That's all it is. Like, some things aren't 100%. It's like, well, I looked at it and saw something different. Strike's a strike. Those are strikes. And he overcame it. And he threw 14 pitches in that eighth inning, which I kept an eye on, to wonder, how does he come out in the ninth inning? What helped him is that Alonzo with that two-run home run to give him a little bit more insurance. And my God, he didn't miss a beat in that ninth inning. Didn't miss a beat. Strikes out Matt Duffy. Strikes out Juan Lagares. Strikes out Kurt Suzuki. And there's Shohei Otani waiting on deck. I get it's a three-run game, so you're kind of saving your chip for when you need to. I just, I have a tough time not using one of my best offensive players. That's my first guess, second guess on Phil Nevin. I get it. You're waiting because if you can get a couple of guys on base, he's going to pinch hit for Rengifo or he's going to pinch hit for Tyler Way. I totally get it. I'm just giving you the comment of it sucks to not use your best weapon at all. Not that it's the same as Buck Showalter keeping Zach Britton in his back pocket, but when I have my best player, not that Otani's their best player, I don't know, Mike Trout is. I mean, Otani does two things that Mike Trout, one thing that Mike Trout can't do, but overall, Mike Trout is better specifically as an offensive player, is what I mean. It's tough not using him, but it ain't my effing problem. The Mets win. Buck puts on a clinic over the final few innings of this game. And the Mets secure themselves a 5-5 five and five road trip. Now, as far as the standings are concerned, we kind of knew this was coming. 
it's like you built a 20-point lead in the NBA and it's the first quarter and you're facing a really good team. You're not just going to wire to wire this really good team. You may beat this really good team, but they're going to make a run. They may cut it to six. They may even cut it to one. And your hope is you've built a big enough lead to where you can hold this raging hot streak off. Now, it is still only June, so we have a long, long ways to go in this season. But the Atlanta Braves right now are the hottest team in baseball. I mean, there's no debating that. They've won 11 in a row. And I don't want to hear about schedules. I don't want to hear about who they're facing. Because that's the stuff Mets fans and Yankee fans are doing to each other right now. And it's stupid. It doesn't matter who you play. And no one looks at a team's record and says, Why? Well, hold on. How many of those wins came against teams above 500? Nobody does that. You know, yes, the Atlanta Braves have won 11 in a row, and they've done it against nothing but crappy teams. That is 100% factual. Who cares? It doesn't matter. They're 34 and 27. And by the way, here's some bad news for anyone who does get crazy about who they faced. So they began this win streak against the Arizona Diamondbacks, right? The hitless wonders. Then it continued against the Rockies, the Athletics, and the Pirates, just so you could put names on this. All of them bad teams. We all agree no one's arguing. Do you know who the Atlanta Braves play this week? Well, I'm going to tell you. They play the Washington Nationals and the Chicago Cubs. More bad teams. So if they go six for six on this road trip, and now they have a 17-game winning streak, it's still a 17-game winning streak. It doesn't matter who you do it against. So usually we have these inane discussions when arguing the Mets versus the Yankees. But I just want to point this out about the Braves. It sucks. They're winning every single day. They're giving up two runs or less every single day. Matt Olson's like a hero now. I, I get it. I don't want to see it. Ronald Acuna's uh, doing his LeBron James imitation every single night. Braves are good. I mean, should we be surprised by this? I mean, this is a baseball team, and... You know, I I hate saying this because I don't like the Braves. They have been the most disrespected team over the last half a decade because ever since they won their first division championship of this run, you know, we'll call it the Ronald Acuna. I don't even call it the Ronald Acuna era. Whatever era you want to call it, starting in 2018. Every single year, someone else has picked to win the NL East. Like, the Braves have never really been given that much respect over the last five years. And if you haven't paid attention... Yes, they won the World Series last year. We all know that. They've won four straight divisions. Now, this isn't exactly Maddox, Clavin, Bobby Cox, but they've won four straight divisions. They win 95 games almost every year. The year they don't win 95 games, they win 88 games and they win the World Series. So they're good. They're good. The last last time they weren't good was five years ago. They're good. We knew this run was coming. And so, look, you you can flip-flop this way however you want. If I told you, no Jake, no Max, five and a half games lead. If I told you a week and a half ago, ten and a half game lead is going to go down to five and a half, wouldn't that be depressing? Yes, you could cut and paste it however the hell you want. You can make it to be the most amazing thing ever or the worst thing ever. Here's the bottom line. The New York Mets are going to play the Atlanta Braves a crap load of times this season. They are not done yet. In fact, they have only played four times this season. So that means they've got 15 games left on the schedule. 15 games. 
And that's going to determine this thing. In the meantime, take care of the Milwaukee Brewers and the Miami Marlins. Hope the Atlanta Braves get tripped up. Their schedule will toughen up because they got a homestand against the Giants and Dodgers coming up. Just continue to have a lead. Hopefully you can get back up to seven, eight, or nine games. But look, they're very hot. What were you going to do? Of course you're going to lose ground as they're winning 11 in a row. You knew that was going to happen. The Philadelphia Phillies getting hot? Maybe not. I don't, I don't know if I expect them to get as hot as they've gotten since they fired Joe Girardi. I'm still not scared of him personally. I give him credit. They've been red hot. Zach Wheeler's tremendous. I wish he was still a New York Met. The Braves are the team to worry about. And you should worry about them because they're good. But 15 games between the New York Mets and the Atlanta Braves. And that's going to help determine it. What's crazy is that they don't play again until a little bit before the All-Star break. July 11, July 12, July 13. Then they play a bunch of games in August. I think they play seven. Let me look it up. Two, four. They got a five-game series at City Field in August because of uh, the lockout. You got a five. That sounds familiar. Remember they had a five-game series against the Braves last year? The Mets lost three out of five, and that gave them enough confidence to go out and make a bunch of trades. So there's going to be a lot of games against each other. And hopefully Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer are pitching in a lot of those games. But I wouldn't fret about where this lead went. You knew the Braves were going to go on some kind of run. Anyhow, let's take a little comments from Twitter for Rico Bronia. And I'm just going to read them, whether they're negative, positive, or whatever the hell people are saying. So I'll start with Peter D. I can't believe you were okay if the Mets finished the first half 12 games over. Well, yeah, because what I was saying was when Max and Jake went down, go play 500 baseball. That was my expectation. Just go play 500 baseball. And at the time, to Peter's point, they were 12 games above 500. Yeah. I I, I didn't expect them to go play 600 baseball. And by the way, I don't know what their record's going to be when Jake and Max come back. I may not be that far off. But it was a reasonable goal because my thought was, and it remains the same, survive without your two best pitchers. Obviously, when you're watching them on a day-in, day-out basis, you're hoping you go into every single game you play. But survive without your two best pitchers because when Jacob DeGrom is back, assuming he comes back, and if or when Max Scherzer comes back, all of a sudden, this team looks very, very different. So, yeah, I stand by that. Why is that stunning? Joe DeSanto writes, very encouraging road trip. 18 games above 500 without DeGrom or Scherzer. I'm a Met fan. I'll always be skeptical, but I love this team. Of course, we always love our team when they're playing well. Like when Lindor is giving advice to Pete Alonso right before he hits a home run. And Eduardo Perez says, that's why this team could go far. I think they were doing that last year, too. And we love that until we stopped loving it because the team was playing like crap. JQ asks, where do you see the Mets improving? A bat, bullpen, or rotation as it comes to the dog days of summer? I think the bullpen will definitely be addressed. Sometimes it's tough to address the bullpen because you've got to look at all the bad teams in baseball and say, okay, who from that team, from those teams, would add to our bullpen? So the Cincinnati Reds are really, really bad. You want Edwin's brother, Alexis Diaz? You know what I mean? So, okay, Colorado Rockies, bad. Do you want Daniel Bard? Is that going to really move the needle? Is it going to make it move? 
as some may say? Probably not. So it's tough. I mean, ideally you want like this dominant closer on a crappy team. Well, how many crappy teams have a dominant closer? But I do think they're going to add a bat. And that gets me to J.D. Davis. J.D. Davis is now the everyday DH. And he's hit. If you look at his production since the moment he became the guy, let's just call it June 1st, he's in about 320. He did hit a home run today or in the Sunday night game. But you're looking for more extra base pop. You're looking for more of that. But he's hit over the last two and a half weeks. But do I see J.D. Davis as the everyday DH on August 5th, three days after the trade deadline? I don't know, man. I was envisioning the Red Sox selling. That one looks far off because they're in a wild card spot now with the way they've played. So I was imagining J.D. Martinez. That one doesn't seem as realistic. But I think they'll shop for a bat. I don't think they'll shop for rotation help, assuming Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer don't have setbacks. Uh, The copy Frederick asks, should J.D. be playing over Luis Guillerme? Now, here's what's interesting about that. Luis Guillerme is a nice piece in this lineup. He is that guy who can battle, give you nine, 10 pitch at bats, hit him where they ain't. I'm not saying he's a 320 hitter, but obviously he was producing at a very high level and he's marvelous defensively. So if you said, look, I'm going to play Luis Guillerme at second base, I'm going to play Jeff McNeil at DH or Mark Hanna at DH, are you a better defensive team because you have Guillerme defensively every single day? Yeah, but the problem is, if now you're DHing Jeff McNeil, you lose that versatility option late in the game. So if it comes down to strictly who's better offensively, J.D. or Luis, they're different. If J.D. can hit for pop, J.D.'s a guy who can scare you a hell of a lot more or scare opponents a hell of a lot more. I think right now both guys should play, and both guys are playing. Both guys should get ample opportunities to play. Matt Frosco says, do McNeil and Nimmo both deserve all-star bids with Alonzo, Lindor, and Diaz? How many guys are we setting to the freaking all-star game? You know, here's what's difficult about all-star selections, and I'll do my homework on it. You kind of have to look at how everybody's doing. You know, you watch a team every day. Do I feel Jeff McNeil's been an all-star caliber player just based on watching him every single day? Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Do I feel Lindor is an all-star? Lindor's had a very good year. It's just been up and down. Uh, Edwin Diaz is an all-star. Pete Alonso is an all-star. But in fairness, you always have to compare it to the other kind of guys battling. You know what I mean? So on the top, on the surface, I don't think Brandon Nimmo's an all-star, by the way. Um, I know he gets on base a lot, and a lot of the stats are very nice to him because he's really good defensively in center field. He's a good base runner. And I like Brandon Nimmo, but I haven't felt as if he's had an all-star caliber season. The other thing is, do you care if he's an all-star? I mean, do you care if the Mets have five all-stars? I don't know, man. Jamie I mean, it's, writes, it's great optics, job splitting. What'd you say, Hoff? It's, it's optics. It's, it's optics. Like, the Yankees are probably going to have a buttload of guys there, right? They're probably going to have... I'd say at least five to six players potentially on top of pitchers. So optically, it's going to look nice to go to all-star game. Does it mean anything to anybody? No, but optically, it's like, wow, they're really doing well, especially the fan base being behind them. You know what's funny? Outside of Aaron Judge, he's the only offensive player who's an all-star for the New York Yankees, but their entire rotation are all-stars, and Clay Holmes is an (laughs) all-star. So when you 
So when you add it up, you may have like seven All-Stars, as you said. You're telling me Jose Trevino is not going to get uh, <laughs> a, a, an All-Star nod because the Yankees fans are are through the roof right now this year? They're the best team no, in baseball. Trevi- Trevino's great, man. I mean, I listen, if I, if I was a Yankee fan, I'd be through the roof about Jose Trevino, too. But <laughs> I don't know. I, I, maybe it's my age because I think when I was a lot younger, I thought differently about the All-Star game. When we get to All-Star Week, the, you know, the three or four days that we have off, I just want a break. As a diehard baseball fan who invests a lot of time watching all these games, when I get to Home Run Derby Monday and All-Star Game Tuesday, I'm emotionally exhausted. So if Pete Alonzo's there and Jeff McNeil's there, I'm happy for them individually. But I can tell you right now, just as a fan, it, it doesn't do anything for me. I'm not concerned about guys getting hurt. I'm not giving you one of those speeches. It's more whatever. Uh, you know, okay, great. They're there. Congratulations. Hopefully they get a big bonus for it. So you're saying there's not going to be an emergency Pete Alonzo home run derby podcast? No. No, <laughs> you can do it, though, if you want. I- I'll hand the reins to you for the Rico Brown. You can break down his home run derby swing. I know Pete that. loves it. I can tell you that. I know he's a, he's a huge fan of that. He does well. He does well. He does well. He owns the home run derby. <laughs> they should rename it after him. All right, so the Mets are finally coming home, thank God. Three games against the Milwaukee Brewer team that has not played well. They have recently fallen out of first place. They may have actually gotten back into first place because they did win the finale of their game on uh, on Sunday. Now, nah, they're still a half game back, but they very much have struggled. The Mets get three games against them and three games against the Marlins. It's just going to be good to have this team at home. They get a much-needed off day, and hopefully we get closer to seeing the return of Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer. But overall, very successful five and five road trip we will record again after the brewers series ends so in general when the mets finish a series i'd say we try to start recording maybe within the hour of that game ending and then posting it up you know pretty much soon after that so you can expect another edition of rico bronia coming up thursday night after they wrap up their series against the brewers and then again sunday night after they wrap up their homestand actually no the series doesn't end sunday the series ends monday see it's a wraparound. Did you know that, Pete? Uh, I did now. I didn't know that. <laughs> you know what? I, I. It's funny. I kept thinking about this homestand as a six-game homestand, six-game homestand. Then all of a sudden, I went to go look at my tickets because I'm a season ticket holder. And I see Monday afternoon. And I'm like, oh, crap. I got to get rid of that. I'm not going. I got I to work. I'm doing a radio show. So that episode may be a little bit delayed because I do have to do Carton Roberts and then come home. So... I guess we'll post <laughs> we'll post that Rico Bronia sometime Monday night after they wrap up their four-game series against the Miami Marlins. Either way, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>